Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me for this special 75th anniversary of Leyte Gulf Week episode is my co-host, Richard Latour, the Editor-in-Chief of Naval History Magazine. Hello, Richard. Hi, Ward. Nice to be back. It's always great to have you back. And this has been a really uh, exciting week for us as we commemorate the 75th anniversary of the Battle of Leyte Gulf and very much enjoyed learning more about the Battle of Leyte Gulf, including the individual stories of heroism and the stories of leadership decisions gone awry. And that's sort of what we're uh, dealing with today. On the phone, we have the author of an article in the current issue of Naval History Magazine, the October-November issue of Naval History Magazine, Richard B. Frank. And Richard has written, Rich has written an article called The World Wonders. And Richard, we talked about this on Monday when we were talking about the larger battle of, or or the overall battle of Leyte, Leyte Gulf. And we actually teased out that we'd be talking to Rich today. So Rich is an Army veteran and a retired attorney. He's written a couple of books, Guadalcanal, The Definitive Account of the Landmark Battle, which was published by Random House in 1990. And he won the General Wallace M. Green Award from the Marine Corps for that one. And his second work, Downfall, The End of the Imperial Japanese Empire, was published in 99 by Random House, and he won the Harry S. Truman Book Award for that one. And we'll also let you listeners know that he has a book coming out called Tower of Skulls, and that'll come out in March next spring. So Rich, thanks for joining us here at the Proceedings Podcast. Well, thank you very much for having me. So the article starts with a section called Setting the Stage. So why don't we go ahead and do that? Take us to 30,000 feet and set the stage that brings us to this fateful message that we'll describe in great detail. Well, the the Battle of Leyte Gulf is usually deemed to be the greatest modern naval battle if you count the number of modern ships and certainly the geographical expanse. Uh, The battle itself actually never really touched Leyte Gulf. It's all around Leyte Gulf, four major actions. The one that we're really going to address is the one uh, called the Battle of Samar or Off Samar Island on the 25th of October, and we're exactly in the time frame of the battle, in fact. Uh, what basically happened was that uh, Admiral Halsey's third fleet was charged with covering the landing on Leyte and the Southern Fleet, which was supporting General MacArthur's forces, which were fighting ashore. And Admiral Halsey had uh, decided to head north with his entire fleet to pursue Japanese carriers, which we now know were acting as decoys for the purpose of getting him away from Leyte Gulf. Uh, This cleared the way for a huge uh, Japanese uh, service ship task force under an animal named uh, Karita Takao. And Karita's uh, surface force, uh, by the morning of the 25th of October, included uh, four battleships, including the Yamato, which was one of the two of the largest and most powerful battleships ever built, and about six heavy cruisers and a couple of light cruisers and I think about 11 destroyers. And because Halsey was out of the way, Karita uh, came to an area called San Bernardino Strait, and as he headed down towards Leyte Gulf, he fell upon this American uh, task unit of... Uh, known to history, best of all, by its radio call sign, Taffy 3. And Taffy 3 had six very modest escort carriers, which were very small carriers that could handle typically about 24 to maybe 28 aircraft and had a max speed of maybe 18, 19 knots. And they were screened by three destroyers and four destroyer escorts. So Taffy 3 basically 
as I said, I think in the article, is that David matched up much, much better against Goliath than Taffy 3 mm-hmm. did to Karita's uh, task force. Well, the battle that ensued, of course, was marked by tremendous heroism on the half, behalf of the sailors and particularly the aviators of uh, Taffy 3 and the other escort groups that were in the area. And as the battle unfolded, the commander of Taffy 3, Admiral Clifton Sprague, of course, called for help. And one of the uh, available American assets was believed to be an outfit called Task Force 34. And this was uh, because Admiral Halsey had issued an order, a preparatory order, the the day before, in which he indicated he was going to form what he called Task Force 34, which was going to comprise his six modern fast battleships with his third fleet, some cruisers and destroyers. And he originally intended for them to basically close in on the crippled remains of the Japanese carrier fleet and finish them off. So they started demanding uh, uh, Sprague and then his superiors uh, and Admiral Thomas C. Kincaid, the commander of the 7th Fleet, began broadcasting messages in Kincaid's case in plain language asking where is uh, Task Force 34 to come to the rescue of Taffy 3. And Admiral Nimitz, who was in Pearl Harbor, was monitoring this by radio and he too uh, was uh, very concerned about what was going on, obviously, in view of the desperate circumstances that Taffy 3 uh, was in. And although Nimitz normally was not one to intervene uh, uh, in the direct action of his subordinates or whatever here, in this particular case, he uh, uh, indicated he wanted a message sent uh, to Halsey asking, where is Task Force 34? So that's sort of the basic background to uh, where we get to this message, which is of course, going to be the, the subject uh, of the article and becomes uh, probably the most controversial single message the U.S. Navy uh, issued in uh, the millions in World War II. I think if you look at all, all the radio communications with the U.S. Navy in World War II, the only, the only message that is arguably more famous is the one by uh, an officer named Logan Ramsey on the morning of the Pearl Harbor attack saying, Air Raid Pearl Harbor, this is no drill. And, of course, that simply alerted the nation to this devastating attack. Whereas the message that uh, Admiral Nimitz sends uh, is going to become uh, famous or infamous for another reason. It's going to have a direct consequence in terms of the unfolding battle. Now, we have to uh, take a little aside for a moment and talk about radio procedures, because that's what's going to play a huge role in this whole matter. Uh, American uh, communications uh, were uh, in infused with information from American code breakers. And they, code breakers, based on their own work against other codes, had advised people who prepared American communications that it was very important to try to conceal the beginnings and the endings of messages because those beginnings and endings of messages typically had very stereotypical phrases that provided a way for a code breaker to try to guess language and then work use that as what they call the crib to work their way into the message. So the instructions were that whenever a message was sent, and especially a short message, there should be what was called padding at the beginning and the end of the message. And padding was supposed to be completely nonsense phrases that had nothing whatsoever to do with the content of the message. And further, the instructions provided that the padding would be set off from the actual message itself by the use of a double consonants. Uh, to clearly distinguish the fact that it was padding as if that wasn't or shouldn't have been already manifestly obvious. Mm-hmm. So the message is prepared uh, to be sent out in Admiral Nimitz's name uh, in final form read, Turkey trots to water, 
GG, where is, repeat, where is Task Force 34, RR, the world wonders. When that message was uh, dispatched uh, and received by uh, Admiral uh, uh, Halsey's flagship to New Jersey, the communicators properly immediately recognized the complete nonsense phrase, turkey trots to water, as being padding, and, and, and took it off the message that was going to be passed up to Halsey. But when they looked at that phrase at the end of the message, uh, given the context, they had doubts as to whether it truly was padding or not, even though they did see that the designators are, are what's supposed to be at the clear signal that it's padding. And they decided to send it up to the flag bridge on the assumption there'd be somebody up there who could explain to Admiral Halsey uh, that this was actually padding. It was not part of the original message. Admiral Halsey, at his level, was not accustomed to seeing any message that had padding on it. That was all supposed to be removed before he ever set eyes on it. So they pass the message up to Halsey, and he reads it, and he reads the world wonders as a deliberate insult by Admiral Nimitz to him over the situation that's unfolding there off, uh, uh, off Samar Island, right over here. And Halsey goes into a snit. He throws his cap down by various accounts. He becomes very upset. It affects his decision-making. He delays uh, for more than an hour uh, any decision to make any action. And then through the rest of the day, he makes a series of questionable decisions about what to do. And the message itself thus plays a huge role in what happens because Halsey, at the end of the day, never gets any surface ships within uh, firing range of uh, uh, Korea's task force. They they catch up with one straggler, but that doesn't uh, relieve Taffy 3 and doesn't uh, basically um, do what Halsey wanted to do, which was to bring his battleship guns into play to help crush the Japanese fleet. So that's why that message and the padding, the world wonders, has become famous or infamous. And no account of the Battle of Lake Gulf can really talk about the battle without talking about that message. Now, whereas we know that uh, a fellow named Logan Ramsey sent that message uh, about uh, Air Raid Pearl Harbor, this is no drill. We've never known who it was who attached the uh, the padding. There's been some references that there was such an individual who was an ensign who was dressed down and supposedly severely after the battle for this misstep or whatever. But we've never known uh, what the background was to this. Well, and this is where uh, uh, I come into play in, in this, and that uh, I work with the... Uh, National Museum of the Pacific War in Fredericksburg, Texas, which is a world-class facility for a number of years. And I was advised uh, about a year or so ago that they had uh, released uh, some memoirs that they had accumulated, including uh, uh, some newly released memoirs. And I was down there looking at the finding aids, and one of them involved a fellow named uh, Elmer Ottinger, who was described as a communications officer in Nimitz's headquarters, Sempac headquarters in Pearl Harbor. And the finding aid said that he had had some direct personal contact with Nimitz. And so I was thinking, well, this might be some interesting color uh, in the perspective of this guy about what Admiral Nimitz was like. So I pull up this memoir, which is very lengthy and very detailed. Ottinger had been a communications officer. Actually, he was involved in monitoring American communications for security violations. As I'm reading along, I suddenly come to this area where he starts talking about the World Wonders message and says that the officer who did this was a fellow he identifies as Dan Castor, C-A-S-T-E-R. And he says this was a fellow who was been promoted from enlisted ranks for his valor in battle, and that, in fact, Ottinger claimed that he had realized that uh, Castor 
had never been to the proper training for a communications officer. So with those clues, uh, I turned to uh, Chris McDougall, uh, one of the archivists at the Nimitz, a uh, very skilled archivist, obviously. And I said, can you look in the records that you have here concerning uh, SIMPAC headquarters and find out uh, if this identification is, is there, is there a Dan Castor who was on the staff of Admiral Nimitz in October 1944? So this message that I send uh, by email reaches Chris towards the end of a Friday, and he starts some uh, preliminary work, and uh, he finds a roster uh, that doesn't have anyone named Dan Castor, but it does have a guy named J.D. Castor, K-A-S-T-E-R, who's listed as an ensign. And Chris uh, comes to the end of the work week or whatever and goes home, but Chris being Chris, he doesn't put this whole thing aside. He's done a lot of genealogical work, and he goes to Ancestry.com and makes some shrewd deductions. Basically, most servicemen in World War II had birthdays somewhere between about 1950 15 and 1925. So he uses that information and the caster thing, and he starts uh, churning on ancestry. And make a long story short, he eventually begins to accumulate a series of documents, uh, including one that a fellow named John Donald Caster, K-A-S-T-E-R, had turned into a, a state agency, which identified him as a, a guy who was, uh, by the end of his service, was an officer, but he had served early in his service aboard the heavy cruiser Northampton. Uh, Chris knew that the Northampton had been sunk off Guadalcanal in 1942, and that might have provided an instance in which uh, Castor could have done something that was heroic, which probably led to his later commissioning. So he accumulated a bunch of documents, and he sent them to me, and I looked them over, and I thought, He's, yeah, Chris has absolutely nailed it. I mean, he, that was an, an amazing piece of work. I, I I told him he was, you know, like a superhero of the archives and mm-hmm. asked him whether he wore a mask and cape while he was doing his work <laughs> in the archives because he, uh, that, uh, the, the effort he did. So we put all this together, and the story that emerged is uh, basically that Uttinger is basically right, that uh, Castor had entered the service in uh, 1940. He was assigned to the Northampton. He was a radio man. We knew from one of the uh, rosters on the ship. And interestingly enough, the Northampton was with Admiral Halsey at the beginning of the war in the Enterprise Task Force. And he rode with Halsey all the way through the early operations uh, of the war uh, in the task group with the carrier Enterprise. He did the Doolittle Raid. He was in three of the, f- of the four major carrier battles in 1942 at Midway, at Eastern Solomons, at Santa Cruz. At Santa Cruz, the Northampton was escorting the Hornet, which was sunk. And then Northampton is put in a service ship task force, which engages in the Battle of Tassafaranga. During that battle, the Northampton is uh, hit by two Japanese torpedoes and sinks. And here Chris had found a document from a collection of stories by Northampton uh, uh, sailors and survivors, one of which was from one of her communications officers. And this communication officer had uh, the additional duty that if the ship was in peril of sinking, he was charged with going around to places where classified or top-secret documents were kept on the ship and loading them into these uh, uh, containers, which are like a mailbag, weighted mailbag, to basically, and then see to their disposal by throwing them over the side. And in his account, he says that after the uh, ship was hit and it's sinking, he says he got with one of his uh, uh, enlisted men, 
We identified it as Dan Castor. And after they secure the uh, top secret documents, uh, mainly radio material, in main, the main radio compartment, they proceed to four other compartments to secure the classified material. Now, this involves going lower in a ship, which is sinking, where the lights have gone out or flicker back on back and forth. There's a sharp list where it becomes hard to stand up, and they have to go around to four more safes, and Castor holds the light while this officer manipulates the, uh, the, the, uh, the, uh, the lock, to get the documents out and then dispose them over the side. And of course, both of them end up in the water when the ship sinks. So this, you know, clearly was, uh, uh, was valor. Uh, and just to think about, uh, you know, going down into a sinking ship lower in the ship as the ship is listing and sinking. Uh, you can see it took considerable guts to do that. Absolutely. So we found out also from the records that Castor made chief radio man. And then in early 1944, he was given a direct commission and assigned to uh, SyncPAC headquarters. So now we know how Castor got uh, his uh, commission as an officer and how he got assigned to Nimitz's uh, uh, headquarters. Now, what's really astonishing is how did this guy not get some training as a communi- officially as a communications officer? Mm-hmm. He'd been a radio man. He handled dispatches, but he'd not been, we can pretty well clearly assume, he'd not been uh, uh, drafting them himself. And uh, he clearly did not understand the full uh, protocols with respect to padding. Uh, it's been speculated, and this sounds quite plausible, but of course is not confirmed, is that the world wonders phrase uh, was uh, something that any American schoolboy might have known at that era. Uh, there was a famous poem uh, concerning the British charge of the light brigade in the Crimean War, um, one of those... Uh, one of those disasters that the British like to uh, celebrate. And uh, it had uh, a phrase in it, uh, you know, cannons to the left of them, cannons to the right of them, and, you know, they charged on the world wonders. And that phrase was used there. And that was actually, that charge was actually on exactly the same anniversary date as the 25th of October, 1944, when the message is being sent. So that's sort of the, the story of how we got mm-hmm. to the world wonders. But I can't, I can't emphasize enough that this was, uh, you know, enormous credit goes to uh, Chris McDougall and his work at the Nimitz in order to uh, unveil uh, the story of who this individual really was. Rich, I've, I've got a question about Don Castor. Uh, I assume that you you and Chris McDougall tried to track him down. Did you have any success doing that? Uh, yes, we went through a whole series of uh, evolutions trying to uh, locate uh, members of his family. Uh, it turns out uh, the family was from Moravia, uh, uh, Iowa. Um, I went through permutations of uh, going to uh, contacts I had that seemed to be possibly have a uh, connection to him. There were, there were there are more casters in Iowa than you can shake a stick at, as we used to say in Kansas or whatever here. So it was not uh, immediately obvious who who could have been a relative of his, and we're still working on that. We're hoping mm-hmm. that maybe this podcast, in fact, will help uh, to mm-hmm. uh, finally put us in contact with the family, so we can get more details about what uh, Don Castor or John Donald Castor uh, ever said about this particular episode. What, what's your assessment of Castor as as a, a sailor? Um, obviously, you know he had a misstep with this uh, padding. But he saw a lot of combat. 
Yeah, I mean, I th- I think by the by the standards of World War II, uh, you know, if you if you ranked all uh, enlisted sailors or officers for that matter for the whole war, this guy was probably about in the top five percentile in terms of the total number of battles he participated in. I mean, to to have sailed in 1942 and participated in all the events he was in, do a little raid, three carrier battles, and the surface ship action in which his ship is sunk. I mean, there. Very few sailors who went through World War II who had as many highlights, uh, significant battle highlights, as what Castor had. And that's a, that's an extraordinary record, and it certainly explains why he was uh, promoted, uh, mm-hmm. given what he did with the Northampton and the record before then. Well, he he thought he was being like uh, you know uh, uh, his literary reference there, his historical reference. He thought it was it was like sage, right, and and subtle. I don't think he mm-hmm. wantonly yeah, yeah. intended to fool. Admiral Halsey in the way that it played out. No, not at all. I, I, I don't think there's the slightest chance that he was being, as we'd now say, snarky. Yeah. And, and in the era of Twitter, <laughs> snarky, snarky is in play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do have one story for you along that line. I've looked, I've looked at an awful lot of messages and padding uh, from the World mm. War II period, and the, the best story I have from that is that uh, during the Battle of Okinawa, this uh, American uh, news columnist at that time, uh, David Lawrence, wrote this column, very critical of the Army commander, General Buckner, on Okinawa. And when Admiral Ernest J. King, the uh, uh, chief of naval operations commander, chief U.S. fleet, read the article, he believed he saw in the article evidence that some Navy or Marine Corps officers had been talking to Lawrence, and he was outraged that they had done this uh, to, you know, rile up uh, rivalry or comedy between the services. So he sends this message to Nimitz, and in uh, King's own inimitable style, it says something pretty close to, I want you to track down the miscreant or miscreants who are involved in this, and I want you to punish them severely. Well, the padding on the front of that message reads, rubber hoses. (laughs) (laughs) Ouch, that could hurt. That'll leave a mark, as we say. Well, well, so... The other thing about the front part of this padding, if that was included, that could be kind of a slam, too. If I'm Halsey, I'm like, what, Nimitz is calling me a turkey, right? You know, I mean, it could have been the same sort of misinterpretation if you don't know what padding is. And as you've said, Rich, generally the flag officer never sees the padding, so he doesn't even know right. it exists, right? This is something that happens down in the the, the crypto room or the comms, comms station, and by the time he gets it, that's all been scraped out of the, the message. So so yeah. what what happened between Richard, you may be able to add to this as well. What happened between Halsey and Nimitz after this? How did they did they make up? Did they was there always this this tension between them as a function of this perceived insult? What 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 happened after after that? Well, I think we have to go back earlier and uh, one of the things about the relationship between Halsey and Nimitz is that uh, as we now know, uh which we didn't know for a, a long time because it was Nimitz wasn't going to talk about it and, and, and whatever it is. Nimitz was on very, very shaky ground early in 42. Admiral King flatly didn't think he was, uh, he merited the position of commander in chief Pacific fleet, wanted to get rid of him, and, and Nimitz became aware of this. And Nimitz also was struggling. I mean, the, the fleet was, you know, uh, basically fighting very desperately um, in the circumstances they'd never anticipated. And he'd had a number of flag officers he'd sent out on various missions. And the one flag officer who had consistently done well, been aggressive, and supported him was William F. Halsey. And 
as the months of 1942 went on, Halsey became clearly the most reliable, most supportive flag officer Nimitz had serving under him in an operational Mm -hmm. capacity. And Nimitz never forgot that. And their friendship and bond was very strong. This is one of the aspects that make Halsey's reaction a little strange because his he knew Nimitz, he knew him well, they were friends, and why Halsey thought that Nimitz would deliberately send something so insulting to him, uh, you know, is, is in itself sort of baffling. And in fact, as, as, as I understand uh, the story, and I think this is from uh, historian E.B. Potter, uh, after the war was over, almost all the major flag officers, certainly those about Nimitz's level, uh, produced memoirs, which proved to be financially very profitable uh, for most of them, or almost all of them, and Nimitz declined. And as Potter describes it, one of the most fundamental reasons why Nimitz uh, declined to do so was because if he were to write any sort of an honest memoir, it would involve getting into likely criticism of Halsey, and right to the end, and Nimitz never forgot how critical Halsey had been to him in 1942. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a uh, modern-day analog for that sort of dynamic um, as well, which we will not discuss in depth, but uh, interesting sort of interplay. I should probably know this, Rich, but were Halsey and Nimitz Academy classmates? I know they're both Academy grads, but were they the same year group? No, they weren't, they weren't the same uh, year group or whatever here. Uh, and I've forgotten off the top of my head ex- the exact uh, years or whatever here, but I think they were like two years apart or three years apart, something like that. And the other thing I enjoy about applied history, again, sorry, Richard, every time I use that <laughs> phrase, Richard winces, but the flaws in in these guys, because, you know, I, I went to the Naval Academy, I was an average mid, Halsey Fieldhouse, Nimitz Library, you know what you know, but when you dig deeper, you know, Ensign Nimitz runs a ship aground, Halsey wantonly drives a, a task force into a, a, a typhoon, and right these days there are discussions that if any one of those missteps occurred to a modern-day officer, their career would be over. Um, so this is why I entreat my active duty listeners out there to really, really plug into your history Naval History Magazine is a good mechanism. The archives of the Naval Institute are a good mechanism. We tease out the fact that a Lieutenant Chester Nimitz wrote a definitive article on the birth of submarines in a 1912 issue of Proceedings Magazine. You know, um, I, I've never searched Halsey, but was Halsey a contributor, Richard? Uh, uh, proceedings? Uh, yeah. Yes, yes. In fact, uh, Halsey came out with a... Uh, autobiography uh, in the late 40s and uh, right. uh, a Naval Institute press book no it wasn't a Naval oh. Institute press book but however proceedings ran I'm not sure if it's I don't think it's a direct excerpt but it's obviously something an, an article about Leyte Gulf by Halsey that he later folded into his memoirs and massaged a little bit so written by somebody else about no, Hal- no. Halsey wrote. Uh, Halsey wrote it. So it's well, his I'm byline sorry. in proceedings. He probably had a ghostwriter. Yeah, but, but it's him. It's yes, his byline. Yes. So if you're a member and you go into the archives and you type in Halsey in the search box, you'll find this article. Yes, and that that actually leads to another point that um, this message is against the backdrop of Halsey's very controversial decision to pursue those carriers, and that was sort of a uh, 
that turned into kind of the second battle of Leyte Gulf, as I like to think of it, which was the the debate over that decision. And uh, Halsey vociferously defended his decision to do that, while others uh, criticized him very vocally. Because he got sucked off on a Japanese task force that didn't have a whole lot of offensive power, right. in spite of the fact there were carriers and, and there. He, and he took his battleships The entire and he, yes. task force. And the assumption was that he left a, at least a third of it behind to assist with Kincaid's efforts, but he did not. Yeah, there a lot of miscommunication there. The, the, and uh, Richard is exactly right. Uh, there's, there was this lingering post-war, very unpleasant uh, public uh, dispute. Primar- the primary combatants in that were Admiral Halsey and the commander of the 7th Fleet, Vice, then Vice Admiral uh, Thomas C. Kincaid. And Kincaid, uh, Kincaid's usually depicted as the... Uh, innocent wounded party in these matters and uh, I've uh, in my view that's not quite so simple as that or whatever here uh, Halsey never acknowledged that he really made a major mistake in the whole matter uh, one thing though one of my colleagues John Lungstrom uh, pointed out to me was that uh, after the war the Naval War College uh, produced a number of these tactical studies which are voluminous extremely detailed they covered things like Carl C. and Midway and the Battle of Savile Island. And they started to work one up on the Battle of Leyte Gulf. And this was in the latter part of the 1950s. Mm-hmm. And the first volume was done, which basically gets to exactly the moment where Halsey makes his decision to go north with all the Third Fleet. And then they stopped uh, work on that particular uh, analysis. And those historians who knew about this, uh, we always we always sort of inferred with admittedly without evidence that perhaps they were about to get into something very embarrassing about Admiral Halsey. And so they, they just turned it off at that point because he was a great naval hero and national hero. Or whatever. Well, mm-hmm. it turns out uh, when you get into the papers at uh, the Naval uh, War College, uh, there was work going forward on that. And the conclusion that uh, the fellow who headed it up, a uh, uh, guy had been a Commodore named Bates, and the president of the Naval War College, who was uh, Admiral Hill, who had a very prominent command in World War II, they had come to the conclusion that Halsey was actually right, that by their their lights, even if Corita had gotten down to Leyte Gulf, that the uh, ships that were available to the Southern Fleet should have been able to see him off. Mm-hmm. Uh, a major part of that was that the uh, geography, geography of Leyte Gulf, uh, the Gulf is about more than 30 miles deep, and the entryway is very similar to that passage just off Guadalcanal uh, with Savile Island, sitting between the two uh, watery passages between Guadalcanal and the Florida island or whatever here. So that the Japanese were then funneled into this very narrow uh, area to try to battle their way through. Americans had more air power torpedoes and uh, enough battleship power to, to ward them off. So that was a very startling Revelation to find out that the Naval War College was not going to ding Halsey, but probably would have supported it. Yeah, yeah, and there—I mean, there were two, two other taffies that Corita right. would have to plow through. For the audience, in terms of what's the difference between an escort carrier and a Essex-class carrier, roughly in terms of number of airplanes, what what's the rough number? Uh, well, for each, an Essex carrier at that stage of the war normally would be uh, would be the home for between ninety and a hundred uh, aircraft. Uh, that was if you go through the uh, uh, onboard compliments uh, in the fall of forty four for an Essex. That's normally the range in which they fall. Uh, a an escort carrier at best 
will carry maybe 24, maybe 28 planes. Uh, the Essex Carriers Air Group would be much more potent. It would have uh, upwards of uh, 50 uh, fighters, 54 or so fighters, and then uh, some dive bombers and some torpedo planes, which also could do uh, other types of missions like uh, bombing or whatever here. The escort carriers carried two types of aircraft. Uh, one would be fighters, mostly in and all in Taffy 3, where the uh, Grumman uh, FM2, which was a uh, the original Wildcat fighter, the F4F, been re-engined a little bit more powerful engine. And uh, right, we had talked about that last last show, the difference between right, the Pratt and Whitney right. motor and the Curtis motor, and so was it called right. the Wildest Wildcat or the Wilder Wildcat? <laughs> Wilder Wildcat, yeah, yeah. yeah. Barrett Tillman, a good friend of mine, a great historian, uh, he, he wrote very well about that. Yeah, we love Barrett. And then they they also uh, they also carried some Avenger torpedo bombers, but uh, none of these aircraft on these uh, escort carriers were trained for a fleet action or intent mm. for a fleet action. They never practiced attacking major Japanese warships. They were intended to provide things like combat air patrol to ward off Japanese aircraft, anti-submarine patrols, and some ground support missions. So um, I got to be a pretty good friend with uh, Robert Hagen, who was the gunnery officer mm-hmm. and senior survivor of the destroyer uh, Johnson, of course, one of the great hero ships in the, in the action. Mm-hmm. And Bob, of course, is very proud of what uh, Johnson and the other services corps have done, but he always emphasized to me that the thing that was the most important in, sur- in the survival of Taffy 3 was that those escort carrier aviators, and it was just the escort carrier aviators, kept making attacks on the Japanese uh, ships, which forced the Japanese ships to turn. And when the Japanese ships turned, their, their uh, gunnery uh, accuracy fell off very dramatically. Oh. And these pilots kept boring in to make attacks, even after they'd expended their bombs or torpedoes. Of course, the Japanese didn't know that. All they knew was they were about to be attacked by another plane, so they had to make evasive maneuvers so that uh that's one of the aspects about the battle which is uh, most memorable and most heroic is that the uh, ordinary uh people who never expected to be in those that sort of circumstances rose to the occasion magnificently and again talking about the johnston in the current issue of naval history acts of valor graphic novel uh or graphic short i guess we would call it um, we we uh, document Commander Ernest Evans, who's the skipper of the Johnson Medal of Honor recipient. Uh, so we direct the listeners to check out that story. And we talked about that in some detail uh, in the last episode. Just an amazing story. And another quotable quote was, as they're getting fitted out before the deployment, he says to the crew, this is going to be a fighting ship. I intend to go into harm's way. And anyone who doesn't want to go along, it better get off right now. I love that. <laughs> right? This is the stuff out of screenplays, and this yeah. is real life. You know, it's yeah. incredible. Right, right, right. And he uh, he backed up those uh, tough words with real deeds or whatever here. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's uh, he, uh, as, as heroic as all the other uh, escort vessels were, and as well as the crew on the escort carriers, Evans distinguished himself by, even before any formal order had been given, he simply turned Johnson to steam into the Japanese fleet on mm-hmm. his own. I mean, he didn't wait for anybody to tell him what he had to do. And uh, the, ones, the one, one part of that that is sort of darkly humorous is that apparently in the middle of the battle, his engineering officer was complaining that he was abusing the engines. And <laughs> Evans, of course. It's like not, Scotty to, <laughs> to Captain right. Kirk. Yeah. I'm giving it all she's <laughs> got, Captain. <laughs> Uh, that the guy was totally clueless as to how you know 
they weren't going to be around enough to uh, to worry about the engine. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just keep stoking it. This isn't going to be a factor. I won't tell you why. This is a non-issue. <laughs> right. That's amazing. You know, stuff. one other thing about about the dispute that was also uh, in ammo Halsey in general is that Halsey, uh, the, the Navy in World War II uh, was. Uh, you can almost say notorious for the fact that its flag officers had a great aversion to publicity and journalists. Mm. And an important part of that was the fact that there was this very, very ugly public uh, dispute after uh, the Battle of Santiago and the Spanish-American mm. War, which led to this public uh, argument between two flag officers over who deserved credit for it. And this occurred while most of those individuals who would be admirals in World War II were either at the Naval Academy or very, very early in their career. And this, uh, I believe, is correctly believed to have instilled in them sort of a big distaste for journalism and and dealing with reporters. And Halsey was the great exception. He was just great copy. He just uh-huh. was he was just a natural in terms of his ability to communicate messages to the media and also the sailors in the Navy who, who truly loved him. Now, a lot of the officers had some questions about Halsey's judgment uh, in the long run, but nobody disputed he was a tremendous morale raiser and a tremendous fighting uh, animal. Rich, I remember an article you write for for Naval History about raiding uh, the Navy's flag officers several years ago. I remember you gave Halsey high high marks for the early war and low marks for later <laughs> in the war. Yeah. Yeah, that was that, that. I'm I'm still very fond of that article, and I was uh, my uh, my credit has to go to uh, uh, Jeffrey Barlow, who was a historian at the Naval uh, History and Heritage Center, whatever here, who found this amazing document at the Franklin Roosevelt uh, Library, which showed uh, this story we'd never heard about, which was that uh, President Roosevelt had turned to his senior naval officers at that point were Admiral King and uh, Admiral Harold Stark and told him he wanted a list of what he said the 40 best admirals in the Navy were mm-hmm. at that point. This is in probably late February of 1942. And early March, uh, relatively early March, uh, Stark sends this memo to FDR listing these. They they did this secret flag selection board, and they list the 40, uh, quote, best admirals or whatever here. And what's astonishing when you read that document is – that one of the names that it, that is not on that list is that of Chester W. Nimitz, the then incumbent. <laughs> oh my God! Are you serious? <laughs> serious. Yeah. Uh, Admiral Spruance, Raymond Spruance doesn't make the list either. Although I I think that's that's easily at that point Spruance was only a a, a relatively recently promoted rear admiral, a cruiser division mm-hmm. commander, who had really done nothing except basically you know. Uh, Square his uh, cruisers around with Halsey and had not really distinguished. Halsey, of course, rated extremely high at that point because he'd yeah. already done uh, some raids in the Pacific or whatever, mm-hmm. and several others. It's a, it's a fascinating article. It'd be like <laughs> it'd be like you know Roosevelt asked for the forty best generals in the army, and at that point he gets a list that doesn't include Eisenhower. <laughs> or it'd be like ranking the top forty Division One teams, and you leave out Alabama. Right, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Not that I'm a fan of Alabama, but just the realities yeah. of leaving out Nimitz. That's yeah. um, that's pretty shocking to yes. to be mild yeah. about it. Who 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 were the top three? Do we know the top? Uh, I mean, were they were they in rank order or just forty? They were they were in a well they they were, were ranked in order of who got the the people who were in the top forty. 
either got between five and nine votes from this panel that had been. But it wasn't one through forty; it was just here are the forty. Just they they just gave it by how many votes you got. Okay. uh, Nine nine down to five, and uh, I can't remember everyone that they got nine. I think Halsey Halsey clearly got. I think it, I think it was nine. It's certainly no light, no lower than eight. And as we're talking about things that were left out of of history going forward, and we're talking about the memoirs or the oral histories, and how Nimitz didn't do a memoir uh, in Halsey's, he left out the Battle of the Tin Cans, uh, which seems like a sort of a, a a deliberate sort of way to cover his misstep of of getting sucked off on the decoys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It uh, you know, and and part of this, you have to. Uh, I mean, we have to give uh, some credit to the uh, Imperial Japanese Navy. I mean, their their operational plan was based upon their assessment of Halsey's personality as a commander. He was notoriously extremely aggressive, and they calculated correctly. It turned out that if they dangled carriers as bait, Halsey would take the bait, and that's that's what happened or whatever. Here, uh, what's really if you get into the nuts and bolts about what transpired during the night of the 24th, 25th, and in the morning of the 25th, um, and I, and I, I, don't know if I can mention this here, but I just did a podcast with the Nimitz Museum, uh, the National Museum of Pacific War yesterday about this. And there's, there's, I found a lot more to be said, uh, basically putting in context Halsey's decision. It's, it's, if you actually go through everything that was in front of him and he knew or didn't know, uh, his decision making is not quite so egregious as is often made out to be, but the one part which is really, really almost uh, impossible to explain away is that uh, Halsey, we now know, uh, was basically put to bed uh, the night of the 24th, 25th, and expectations he was going to be under, you know, great strain on the following day in this great fleet action. So some night flying uh, aircraft from the light carrier Princeton have uh, found that uh, Emil Carita's uh, task force, the one that's going to run into Taffy 3, which at the end of the day they thought was retreating westward away from away from the battle, mm-hmm. had turned around and was steaming back uh, to come to San Bernardino Strait and head down to Leyte Gulf. And this information reaches Halsey staff, and they do nothing, and they don't send a message, for instance, to Admiral Kincaid in the 7th Fleet to say, hey, uh, Carita's coming, or whatever. <laughs> it's just it's extraordinarily yeah. difficult to understand how that was uh, screwed up that badly. So we've been talking to Richard B. Frank. The article we're referring to is in the current issue of Naval History Magazine. It's called The World Wonders. And as we said, Rich has a book coming out next spring called Tower of Skulls, A History of the Asia-Pacific War, Volume 1, July 37 to May of 42. And Rich, we'll look forward to talking to you again when that book comes out. So thanks very much for the time on the podcast with us today. Well, thank you very much for having me. Okay, I hope everybody's enjoyed our week of the 75th anniversary of the Battle of Leyte Gulf. If you haven't checked out Twitter and the hashtag Battle of Leyte Gulf 75, please do. There's still a couple of tweets to come. Right now, we're right where the St. Lo has been hit by the first ever kamikaze, something the U.S. Navy would see in spades in the Okinawa campaign and beyond. So, Richard, I thank you for making me smarter, you and Tom (laughs) Cutler and Rich uh, today on this battle. I entreat all midshipmen who are members of the sponsored student program and any JOs in any of the other schoolhouses around the country that are part of the Naval Institute sponsored student program to plug into this particular battle. 
There are episodes of heroism. There are episodes of tactical missteps. This is really super relevant history. Super applied history, as we say, as Richard loves to say. (laughs) So thanks, everybody, for this great conversation. And remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll see you again next time. Mm